Well, good evening. Thank you for the opportunity to come and minister from the Word of God. And uh, good to see each one of you out tonight. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy. Uh, in this weekend, there will be five messages. And um, messages on, on Israel, on prophecy, um, on the study of the Bible, on dispensationalism. And, um, and so we just trust it's a heavy topic, a lot of scripture, a lot of thinking. And I just trust that you will appreciate and learn and benefit uh, from looking at the scriptures in a deeper way. Uh, but I trust it will stretch your thinking and inform your thinking about Israel and about the church and about the time that we live and uh, what the Bible says about the nation of Israel. If I was to ask you how many times the word Israel is used in the Bible, nearly 2,000 times, 144 times the word, the phrase land of Israel is used. 207, something like that, times we have the phrase uh, speaking about God, the God of Jacob. I think another 100 or 200 times the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, obviously, Israel is a big subject uh, in the Bible when we see how many times the word Israel is only second in the Bible to the word God. <laughs> so you can see it's a very, very important subject. And so today, this, this evening, we want to look at two subjects. The first subject is, <clears throat> is dispensationalism. And I want to look at that because it's a way of interpreting Scripture. It's a way of studying the Word of God. And I think it's a very important way. And uh, I want to just give you an introduction to it. Um, I have felt in my Christian life it's one of the most important things that I have uh, studied and learned about how to look at Scripture in such a way that we understand it the way I believe God wants us to understand it. And so we're going to look at that in the first session. The next session is going to be on replacement theology. What is replacement theology? And then tomorrow morning, we're going to look at uh, the land promises. What does the Bible say about the land, the nation of Israel, the living of the land, the possession of the land, the claim of the land? And uh, we're going to look at that. Then Sunday morning, we're going to look at the subject of does Israel's disobedience or unfaithfulness break God's promises to her? And then in the evening, we're going to look at uh, the dislike, the hatred and the, uh, the subject of anti-Semitism, hatred towards Israel, uh, towards the people, towards the land, towards what she stands for. And so we're going to look at that on Sunday night. But take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy. Did you ever notice how many times in 2 Timothy the word, just two words together, the word the truth are mentioned? The truth. I'm ask you to turn to uh, chapter 3, first of all, and verse 7 of 2 Timothy. It says of, um, of the people that lived uh, in the days of Timothy, Timothy lived and ministered in the city of Ephesus. And he writes, ever learning, Paul writes to Timothy, 
ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Not just truth, the truth. Look also at verse 8. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these resist the truth. Verse chapter 4. And they shall turn away from their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Over and into chapter uh, 2. It says in verse 17, Verse 17, their word will eat as doth a gangrene or a cancer, of whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, have erred, saying that the resurrection is already past. Verse 25 of chapter 2, in meekness instructing those who oppose him, if God perhaps will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. But what I wanted to get to is, especially verse 15. Verse 15. You notice in verse 16 and verse 17, we have false teachers, uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Uh, We are also told of Alexander the coppersmith who opposed the Apostle Paul, many false teachers, 24 names mentioned in 2 Timothy. Many of those names are those that oppose the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 14, Strive not about words to no profit, but the subverting of the hearers, talking about false teachers. And then in verse 15 it says, Study, study to show thyself approved unto God. The word study is also the word, I think newer translations use the word be diligent. Give yourself to it. Be a hard worker in the truth, in the study of the truth. Study to show yourself approved unto God. You know, there's such a thing as being approved unto God as to that which you study and learn and understand We need to be approved unto God concerning the truth, learning the truth, studying the truth, being diligent about learning about the truth. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so we want to look during this weekend at what the Bible says about prophecy and about Israel. And about many subjects. And so I'm going to ask you to stay with me. And, um, and I trust that this time together will be an important time and a good time about learning about the Bible. Now, let me ask you a question as we start off. Should we today, as Christians, living today, should we have religious cities? In the Old Testament, there was religious city. There were a number of cities that were religious cities. But Jerusalem was a religious city, a center of worship. Should we have a religious city in in church history? We had Rome, right? And the city of Geneva, Switzerland at one time was a great religious city. Should we have that today? Should Christians have a religious city today? You say, no. Why? There was one in the Old Testament. 
In fact, the word Jerusalem uh, is used hundreds of times in the Bible. Should we have a religious city? Should we have religious armies? Should we go out with religious armies? David had a religious army. Uh, Joshua had an army. We sing songs and we tell stories about uh, the greatness of those men. Should we have religious armies? Well, you know, during church history, there were those who thought that was the right thing to do. One of the reformers, Ehrlich Zwingli, uh, one of the great reformers, he died in battle. Martin Luther had a religious army. John Calvin had a religious army. Many people down through history had religious armies. Should we do that? Should we have religious armies? Now, a lot of heads are saying, no, we shouldn't have that. And I would agree. But why? It's in the Bible, right? Should we practice polygamy? It's in the Bible. And there are people today, we're going to fight that battle. I'll tell you right now, we as a church and we as a country are going to fight that battle and it won't be so long where polygamy will be something more and more commonly talked about, discussed, and um, considered. Should we have polygamy? It was in the Old Testament. Why should we have that? All of these different things... Why shouldn't we have those things? And if we don't understand something about dispensationalism, we don't have a good argument. We need to think a little bit about some of this. State churches, there were a state church. We have a state church. Some countries still have state churches. Germany, Norway, Italy, church armies, religious cities. Polygamy, should it be practiced today? Well, one of the reasons I think that's so important that we understand dispensationalism, because dispensationalism is a way of understanding the scripture that I think puts a proper place, puts, puts different events in Bible history in its proper place. Um, Augustine, it is said, and Matthew Henry, I think, said something very similar. It said, discern the times and the seasons of the Bible, and all Scripture will be in harmony with itself. So we want to think a little bit about this. What is dispensationalism? Let me give you a definition. This is something I gleaned from a number of sources and put together in a longer paragraph. Dispensationalism... Uh, shows Christ to be the center of God's program for the ages and the object of worship for eternity. Dispensationalism is all about Christ, person of Christ, the work of Christ. Dispensationalism shows the failure of man, the mercy of God, the glory of Christ as both Savior and King. Dispensationalism has proven itself to be a stimulus for evangelism, world missions, sound principles of Bible interpretation, and the importance of prophecy and the centrality of Christ. Now, I want to ask you this question. When we think about prophecy, think of the great, uh, the great individual aspects about Bible prophecy. And I want to say that when we think about prophecy, it's important to see that Christ is the center of all of prophecy. We get taken up with the event. We get taken up with the rapture. But we should realize 
that the central figure in the rapture is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not us going to heaven. It's Christ coming from heaven for us. When we think about the, the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord Jesus, who is the center of that event? It's the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of that event. The millennium, the thousand-year reign, the kingdom. Who's the central figure of the kingdom age? Well, of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a central figure. The tribulation period. Who's the central figure of the tribulation period? Well, it's the Lord Jesus who brings all the, tri- all, all the different judgments that will come upon the earth. Every event, the white throne judgment, every event of scripture, the eternal state, who is the one who sits on that throne? Where John said, he that was a look upon was like a sardis and a jasper. Who was that one? It was the Lord Jesus. So every event of prophecy, dispensation shows that all of prophecy is centered in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why it is so important. I believe when we look at scripture in this way, the Lord Jesus Christ will be richer and more elevated and higher in our thoughts and our worship. Well, let's think a little bit about what are some of the dispensations, just for a moment, some characteristics of dispensations. There are seven dispensations, basically, and uh, there's the dispensation of innocency, of conscience, human government, promise, law, grace, and millennium. Now, in each of these dispensations, some characteristics In each of these dispensations, there are certain things we find in every one of them. Number one, there's a spiritual or moral decline at the end of each one. In innocency, it's, of course, the sin and and, uh, the disobedience of Adam and Eve and being cast out of the garden. In each one of these dispensations, there's a judgment at the end. In each one of these dispensations, there's a revelation of what they should be doing There's disobedience and decline, and then there's a judgment. In conscience, there was revelation given about how to worship, and there was disobedience, and then there was judgment. Human government, in the days of Noah, same thing. Revelation was given, disobedience, turning away at the end of that dispensation. In promise, in law, and then we live today in the age of grace, and then the age of the millennium. Their salvation in every dispensation is based on the blood and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not two ways of salvation. Today, you'll hear some people saying there's the dual uh, way of salvation, one way for Israel and one way for those in the age of grace. I think that is wrong. In each dispensation, Christ is the center And uh, some principles, of course, carry over from dispensation to dispensation. But Christ is the center. Look at at this chart for a second. In innocency, major event is a temptation by Satan. In the days of Christ, fulfilled by Christ, there's another temptation. The Lord Jesus Christ did not fall. He triumphed over Satan. In conscience, failure to bring a blood sacrifice. The Lord Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. And there's no more sacrifice for sins. In human government, you have the Tower of Babel and capital punishment. There was an innocent one who was punished for the guilty. 
and the Lord Jesus is the perfect judge. In promise, there was a promised seed, a Jewish nation, it was fulfilled by the Lord Jesus. Well, now there is one body, Jew and Gentile, in one body. And in Christ, there is neither Jew or Gentile. In the Mosaic law, the law was broken. The Lord Jesus kept the law. And in the future, there will be no more law. In grace, there's unbelief and lack of love for Christ. Christ is the example, perfect example of faith. In the millennium, there's a revolt against Christ. Christ is that perfect example of obedience and Christ will reign in righteousness for a thousand years. This, the, the idea behind this chart is simply the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the highest example of what should, be, what should have been fulfilled in these dispensations. But let's go on a little bit further. What are some basics of dispensationalism? A literal interpretation of Scripture when the nature of the passage is not figurative or poetic a literal interpretation of Scripture. A distinction, a distinction between Israel and the church. I would say also a distinction between Israel, the church, and the kingdom. An emphasis on Bible prophecy. An emphasis on missions. Emphasis on the defense of doctrine. We see that in 2 Timothy. Emphasis on biblical scholarship. Down through the history of dispensationalism, there's been a great number of men who've been great, great biblical scholars. And an emphasis on evangelism. Some figures in the modern um, era of dispensationalism. Isaac Watts, we know him as a hymn writer, but he was also a theologian. He was also a dispensational theologian. He wrote one of the first uh, books on dispensationalism. Jane Darby, hymn writer, scholar, Bible translator. Uh, he was a key figure in dispensationalism. W.E. Vine, an author, scholar, Greek scholar, uh, key figure in dispensationalism. Charles Ryrie, John Walverd, evangelists like D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, all dispensationalist leaders, missionaries like Hudson Taylor, Nate St. Jim Elliott, and Bible teachers Harry Ironside, W.A. Criswell, and Elmar DeHaan, all leaders and writers and, and had a great benefit, a great, a great help in dispensationalism in the last 100 or 150 years. A little bit about D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was a great evangelist, but it wasn't until he got in touch and got connected a little bit with dispensational writers that his life was changed. And I have this quotation here in this event uh, in my PowerPoint just to show that dispensationalism, there's something about the proper understanding of Scripture. The more we get into Scripture, the more we understand it, the more we uh, grapple with it and have an understanding, the greater our lives are changed. You know, I think every every a Christian who's accomplished anything for Christ would say that the Bible has been a power and an emphasis in his life, and that is true of D.L. Moody. Emma Moody, his wife, suggested that they go to England for a visit. There were giants of God's word there. There'd be great blessings to D.L. Moody. The Plymouth Brethren in Chicago had gotten their priceless secrets from the spirit-filled English Christians. 
There are men in England like C.H. McIntosh and Jane Darby whose books so blessed him. Here we find the real reason for the English visit from March to July 1867. The motivation was to cure his spiritual asthma by contact with British men of the book. You know, the reason he went to England was to study the word of God, see his life changed by getting immersed in the word of God. He says, I had my attention at a call to CHM's notes, and I was so pleased at the same time and profited by the way they opened up scripture truth that I secured at once all the writings of that author, and if, and if they could not be replaced, I would rather part with my entire library except the Bible than these writings. They have been to me the very key to the scriptures. Now, what he is saying is that dispensational teaching in these writings helped him immensely in understanding the word of God. George Elton Ladd, he speaks about these dispensational leaders. He says, it's doubtful if there's been any other circle of men who have done more by their influence in preaching and teaching and writing to promote a love for Bible study, a hunger for the deeper Christian life, a passion for evangelism, and a zeal for missions in the history of American Christianity. And that's quite a, that's quite a quotation. You know, there's something important about dispensationalism. It changed, transformed lives. It, it encouraged men or motivated or stimulated men and women to be missionaries, to go into the foreign field, to see churches and men and women saved all over this world. In a hundred years, the gospel spread to almost every corner of the globe. Look at this quotation. Timothy Weber um, a student or a professor of, uh, of missions. He says, by the 1920s, dispensational premillennials were claiming that they made up an overwhelming majority of the missions movement. Others estimate that believers in the imminent second coming made up to 75 to 80 percent of the missionary, uh, missionary force worldwide. American premillennialists were better represented on the mission fields than in home churches. Instead of cutting missionary involvement, premillennialism increased it. There's something important about dispensationalism that it motivated many, many, many Christians to go to India and Asia and Iraq and Iran. Anthony Norris Groves went to Iran, went to Baghdad, and brought, uh, brought the gospel to that country in that city. A key part of dispensationalism is a historical grammatic understanding of scripture. We look at the Bible in a literal way. And I think it's a good thing to do that. Look at it as God speaking literally to us, not so much figuratively or spiritually, but look at what the word of God says in a literal grammatical interpretation of scripture. We look at the cultural background, historical background, the word meaning, media context, the, the passage context, related passages, figures of speech, metaphors, symbols. We interpret literally and we discern the differences. When the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word as primary, ordinary, usual meaning 
unless the facts of the immediate context and related passages clearly indicate otherwise. Now, take your Bibles for a moment. Turn with me to the book of Genesis. A couple of reasons why dispensationalism is so important. In Genesis chapter 4, Here we have the dispensation of conscience. Dispensation of conscience. Here we have Cain and Abel. Cain, because he brings a sacrifice the Lord had not commanded him. And Abel, his brother, brings the proper sacrifice. He was angry at his brother and he kills his brother. What happens next? Does God have him killed in capital punishment? No. He puts a mark upon him that he would go throughout the earth and wherever he would go, he would be a wanderer on the face of the earth. And Cain says, this punishment is more than I could bear. You go from place to place, he put a mark upon him. As he goes from place to place, people would say, that's the man that did not bring the offering that God required of him. He killed his brother. And through conscience, God was teaching him. But turn to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 6. We have just a few pages further. We have a scripture that says in verse 6, Whosoever, whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Here you have a new instruction. Now we find out that if a man kills another man, his blood will be required of him. So what is it? Does a man kill another man? He's a wanderer on the face of the earth. But a few pages later, a man kills another man. His life is required of him. No, we won't really understand scripture properly. We won't really understand scripture properly. We don't make a distinction between different dispensations. That God is doing something different in different dispensations. You know, there are people today, Christians today, that live in the age of grace, but they like to go back to the Old Testament and take the laws of the Old Testament and incorporate them today. It's called Christian Reconstructionism. We want to take the laws of the Old Testament and apply them and have a Christian society and apply the laws of the Old Testament today. They're going back to the dispensation of the law and trying to incorporate the principles of that dispensation into this dispensation when God gives other instructions for what what we should be doing in this dispensation. There's some in this dispensation that want to live as if we are in the dispensation of the millennium where the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning as king. And there are miracles, many, many miracles. It says the lame shall jump up, and the lion shall lay down with the lamb. I don't want to be too critical of choruses, but I want to quote to you uh, the words of a chorus. Um, It's a little older from my generation, a little little older, Malcolm of my generation. Uh, It's called Majesty. 
It says, Majesty, worship his majesty. Then it says this, kingdom authority flows from his throne down to his own, his anthem ring. Kingdom authority flows from the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, presumably reigning, ruling in the kingdom age, down to his own, to those who are believers, his anthem ring. And uh, the writer of that, Jack Hayford, he's thinking a little bit as if they're living in the kingdom age where the Lord is on the throne and his power comes down to those who are believers. But that's in a future, that's a future day. And I think it's important that we don't live in the kingdom of the, uh, the, the age of the law. We don't live in the age of the millennium. We distinguish the various dispensations and we look carefully about what does the Bible say about the age that we live in today. What do we do today? We can be so occupied about the age of the law and trying to incorporate that today or the age of the kingdom, trying to incorporate that back today. But we fail to do what God wants us to do today. And so it's so important that we distinguish the different ages that we are in. Charles Ryrie says, Dispensation was marked by a historical, grammatic uh, method of interpretation. It does not spiritualize or allegorize the plain meaning of Scripture. It doesn't preclude symbols and correct types and illustrations and symbols within the framework of Scripture. Now, he has a quotation in his book on the basis of premillennial uh, faith. And he says, An allegorical interpretation fosters modernism. What would happen if you begin to spiritualize the Old Testament? You take the Old Testament and you say, well, all those promises and all the land promises and all that is said to Israel is really for the church. So we need to spiritualize or allegorize the promises in the Old Testament. When you begin to spiritualize and allegorize and say that the word of God doesn't mean what it really means, and we don't take it literally, we don't believe in it literally, then when we come to the New Testament, why should we believe the book of Romans and interpret that literally? Or the first, first Timothy or Second Timothy or the letters or what's said about the church or about baptism or the coming of the Lord? or the kingdom of the New Testament. Why can't we spiritualize that? And the more we spiritualize, the less we stand on the authority of Scripture, and pretty soon we don't have a strong belief in inerrancy, and we don't believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. Because we've spiritualized for many years the Old Testament, now we begin to spiritualize other parts. Allegorical interpretation fosters modernism, it's been often been pointed out it's almost impossible to find a premillennial liberal or modernist. Among Plymouth Brethren, there are those who supposedly the founders of modern literalism. Liberalism is practically unknown. On the other hand, the great body of modernistic Protestantism is avowed amillennial. Thus, the allegorical method of amillennialism is a step towards modernism. Well, let's go on a little bit. The word dispensation, how often does it occur in Scripture? 
20 times, roughly 20 times, the word okonomia is used, which means house order or administration or stewardship or ages. Sometimes God uses the word ages, and that's used 30 different times in Scripture. The present age or the age to come. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 11 and 12, which in his times, the phrase his times, is the word the ages of ages, which in the ages of ages he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The phrase ages of ages speaks about the millennium, which in his times he will show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Many times we read the word ages or dispensations. This age, nor the age to come, present evil age, the age to come in Ephesians 2.7, the end of the ages, the ends of the ages, or the age of ages. In Ephesians, where it mentions one dispensation, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together all things in one. He might head up all things on the earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's two dispensations mentioned in John 1, where it says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There are three dispensations. Turn with me over to Galatians chapter 3. Three different dispensations that are distinguished in Galatians chapter 3. Beginning at verse beginning at verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said not to seeds as of many, but of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And to this I say that the covenant was confirmed before God in Christ the law. He says this covenant made to Abraham was before the next dispensation, the dispensation of law, which was 430 years after. Cannot annul those promises that were before the dispensation of law. And if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise. He says one cannot annul the other. When the law came, it didn't break the promises of the previous dispensation. Verse 19, wherefore then serves the law, the dispensation of law, the giving of the law? And he goes on to say that it gave to show that we were sinful. But look down a little bit further. Verse 22 says, Scripture hath concluded all under sin. But then it goes on to speak of another dispensation. And this dispensation, this dispensation is called dispensation of faith or grace or the church. Verse 23, but before faith came. There was always faith in the Old Testament, wasn't there? Faith didn't come in the New Testament. It was in the Old Testament. But he said, before faith came, we were kept under the law under the dispensation of the law, shut up unto faith which should be hereafter revealed. 
faith in a special way, that the gospel would be presented and preached in the dispensation of grace. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith is come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. So three different dispensations, one of grace or faith, one of the law, one of, one of promise. There are also two, there are three dispensations in Matthew 10. You know, I, I always think that when a younger believer or when a new believer uh, or, or anyone reading the Bible reads through Matthew or reads through a lot of parts of the Bible, if they don't have a dispensational understanding I would think that they'd be very confused, very mixed up. You come to chapter 10, and the Lord says to, his, to, to the, the 70 or, or the 12 there, he says, go only to the lost house of Israel, right? Go only to the lost house of Israel. Go to village and village, and they don't receive you. Shake off the dust from your shoes. Go on to the next place. He says, don't go to the Gentiles. He says, don't go to the Gentiles. Go only to the lost house of Israel. But you come to chapter 28 and verse 19 and 20. What? How many chapters later is that? 18 chapters later, you're reading through the gospel of Matthew, first gospel in the New Testament. And it says, go into all the world, to the nations, to the Gentiles, preaching and teaching them all things that I have shown you. What is it? I thought they were only to go, the same people, right? The same disciples. They're only to go to the lost house of Israel. Now he says, go into all the world, every nation. And that, that new person reading that Bible said, they are very confused. Which is it? Well, you see, there's different dispensations. And if we don't understand that, we don't grasp that, and we don't show other people that, what happened before well, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ happened. And slowly a new dispensation is broken, the dispensation of grace or faith or the church. And so now the gospel goes everywhere. That didn't happen in the age of the law. That didn't happen in the age of promise. That doesn't happen in the kingdom age, but it happens now in this dispensation. So if we don't clearly understand and distinguish between dispensations, we will have a hard time grasping and understanding the important teachings of the word of God. A dispensation is a period of time which God is dealing with man in some way in which he hasn't dealt with them before. Our time is coming to a close. I want to take some questions. If you have some questions um, near the end. But I love this quotation by Eric Sauer. One of the things I think we often forget, a lot of dispensationists often forget, we get so wrapped up in prophecy and so wrapped up in, 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 in sometimes the scriptures and what it says, especially about prophecy and the coming of the Lord, that we forget that all the Bible and every dispensation and every prophetic event, the Lord Jesus Christ is the center. He is the heart and the center. Eric Sauer, who was the president, uh, former president of Wiedenes Bible College in Germany, he says this, He who accomplishes all things according to his own will has also determined the design of the ages, of the dispensations.
Therefore, he is not only creator of the ages. You know, it tells us in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, where it says, Sundry times and diverse manners and times past God uh, spoke to us, but now it says that he has, his son has come, by which he has made the worlds. Well, that word for worlds is ages. By which he has made the ages. The Lord Jesus Christ is the designer of the world, yes. And part of that is the creation of the world, but it's also the ages. He is the creator of the ages. He is also the king of the ages. Turn with me to Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, our friend Eric Sauer didn't put the scripture references into his allusions here in this quotation. He's the creator of the ages. But it says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18, verse 17. Now unto the king, it says in King James, eternal. But unto the king of the ages. That is what that word eternal is. But unto the king of the ages. Every age the Lord Jesus Christ is king and sovereign and creator. He is leading and developing and designing and has his fingerprints on all of these ages. And each of the ages are important. Unto the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That last part, forever and ever, amen, is also unto the ages of ages, amen. Unto the king of the ages, all wise and visible, God be glory and honor unto the ages of ages of ages. The Lord Jesus shall be the center of these ages, the creator ages, and he'll be the one who is worshipped and extolled through all the ages. Each age or epoch is marked by a definite special principles of God, and each age brings to view the Son in new greatness and beauty, for in the Son all ages revolve. What a beautiful scripture. That's why I like to think that dispensationalism is so important. In each age brings to view the Son in a new greatness and beauty. Creator of the ages, beginning of the ages. We're going to skip through some of this. Let's just go to this passage here. Let's go to Hebrews. I'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. It's good to scratch the surface, study the word of God, and learn as much as we can the king of the ages and the creator of the, of the ages. But here in chapter 9, verse 26, we read, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the, of the world. But look at this last part of chapter 9, verse 26. But now once, in the end, I'm reading from the King James, the end of of the world. That's what it says. This middle phrase, but once in the end of the world. Well, that word world is age. And the word end 
is really not the proper interpretation. Newer translations, I think all the newer translations have a different word. And that is the word the consummation or the climax, the high point. Not the end. The end, in a sense, can be the high point. can be a low point, the end, but can be a high point. Now he says, but once in the high point, the very climax, very apex of the ages hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now what's beautiful about that is this. The most important event in world history, not the election of a president, not the conquering of a kingdom, not some great event in history, but the highest point, the apex, the climax of all of the ages, all ages past, all ages future, the highest point of world history is when the Lord Jesus went to the cross of Calvary and laid down his life. Now at the end or the climax of the ages, the Lord Jesus came and made and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. A little quotation by James Flanagan you're looking for a good commentary on Hebrews, um, the What the Bible Teaches by James Flanagan is very, very good. Once in the consummation of the ages, he appeared. His coming was a climactic moment of fulfillment. It was the moment towards which all purpose and prophecy had been moving. It was not so much an end as a consummation. The Savior's coming to put away sin was the very climax of human history. The study of dispensationalism, knowing the different ages, we see Christ in, in his greatness and in his beauty. We see his death in a new way. When we begin to look and scratch beneath the surface, so I just encourage you to learn as much as you can about dispensationalism. This is just a little of an introduction, but um, dispensationalism is the study of the word of God as closely and carefully as we can. So we're going to just stop there for, ten, for this session. Uh, take a few questions, if there are any. I want to thank the young people here for being such wonderful attend, attendance through all this. Yes. Well, you know, when you say, uh, when we say a literal interpretation of Scripture, that does allow for some, there's a lot of symbols. Right? Yes, absolutely. Like, like for instance, Absolutely. Symbols. symbols. Are clearly identified. Lampstands are the Absolutely. Churches, and so forth. But it does allow for Absolutely. a symbolic Absolutely. Right? The, the, the parables are that way too. Right. The parables. In the parables, we do have the interpretation the Lord gives to them. Uh, the sower went forth to sow, and then he tells us the, the seed is the word of God. And so he interprets that. And many times the symbols are interpreted in a literal way in some other part of Scripture. So poetry... Uh, some parts of prophecy, uh, but when it's clear, when it says to the descendants of Abraham, to the offspring of Abraham, I give to you all this land, we should take that uh, literally. That is a promise to the descendants of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. Whenever possible, we interpret scripture in a literal way. Uh, any other questions? Okay, take a little break.
I think um, there's a hymn or just a little stretch break. And um, 